you will pay a price for being unique. You will be judged. They will judge you. They will put you down. But then at some point, you prove yourself and it takes time for you to prove yourself. Now you become not an outsider. You become, wow, what a great example. Until then, you are not. Until then, you are the one, the black sheep that they're going to exclude. And if you can power through that, price is worth it. Do it. Welcome in to another episode of the Professional Profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking team, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. Today, I'm lucky enough to talk with Dr. Zena Sinker, who is the Director General at Matter. She is also a TED and keynote speaker, the Puzzle X chief creator, a physicist, an activist, an amazing scientist, and an incredible human. In our interview, we cover tons of different things, including graphene, creativity, expression, the importance of science, the future of science, AI, quantum, and much, much more. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed talking with Dr. Sinker. And here is the interview. Well, welcome, Dr. Sinker. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you. Thank you so much, Charlie, for having me. So just to start and for everyone to know who you are, who are you? Who is Dr. (laughs) Zena Sinker, and what do you work on now? (laughs) What a philosophical question. Who am I? Okay. Whoa. Who am I? The way I would describe myself is that I'm a creator. I like creating things, and it comes into many different forms. By background, I'm a fundamental physicist. I work in the scale of nanometer size uh, things. I have done a PhD and a postdoctoral degree on graphene and nanomaterials. And I've had a very interesting, I would say, non-conventional career path. If you want to describe me by what I have done, what stands out more than anything is that I have had a very unusual path. Um, And all of that comes from my passion for creating. So what am I at the core? I am a passionate creator. Could you dive into the unusual paths you just described and walk us through kind of the steps you took in your career to be where you are now? Certainly. So... I always wanted to be um, a physicist. I followed the conventional path of becoming a physicist. I got a PhD and then I I went on to do a postdoc. And at some point I wanted to have a startup. So I started a startup and I encountered a lot of challenges in the startup that were very um, usual in, in the space of nanomaterials. So there are no standard standardization. There are there's lack of adoption for the industry. Instead of me following the conventional path of saying, okay, well we have to we have to power through this um, or find a way, I looked around and I said, why are there no standards for describing what graphene is or what the properties of graphene should be standardized in a way that we're going to be measuring it. And then I thought, why not get involved in that process? So instead of me following the path, the conventional path, which was the startup path, I got involved in development of international standards for graphene, which is very unconventional. This is not something that you do as somebody who is just out of school with a with a postdoc degree or somebody who just started a startup. Most people would have probably stayed on the path of 
following the startup, going through the accelerator and incubator. I just thought, you know what, why not? I can do that one and I can actually solve a problem which is really hindering uh, the growth of my own startup. So I got involved in that. Then throughout that, I got involved in some other aspects which were um, some very unsexy stuff. Uh, regulatory aspects for graphene and legislation, exactly. Legislation for graphene. And then there came a time where I was asked to run an industry association for graphene. Goodness gracious, I didn't even know what an industry association was. <laughs> I said, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to take this thing on. And we grew that to become the largest association at that time for graphene um, international, 5,000 members. So it was an unconventional path in that sense as well. I didn't stay on one path. I, out of curiosity and love for creation, I took another path. That defines all of this. Uh, all of the decisions that I've made, they don't really have a uh, they don't really have a conventional basis to them. I always look at a space and a gap and I said, you know what, nobody's doing that. So why not? Maybe we can do it. So in preparation for this interview, I actually didn't know what graphene was until <laughs> a few hours ago. And could you just describe and let us know what graphene is and its uses in the future? Charlie, how did you not know what graphene is? I know. How dare I? <laughs> now, I, it's, not, it's not your fault. I'm thinking, what did we do wrong that somebody like you doesn't know about graphene? But I'm glad that you learned about graphene. Graphene is super cool. I mean, graphene was one of the reasons why I took a different path. I was supposed to do a degree in, in astrophysics, and it got, got very distracted by graphene when I was in grad school. Uh, because I walked into a lecture and they were talking about this material. It's called the wonder material of 21st century. It is one atomic layer of carbon. It is the thinnest at one of the strongest materials we have ever seen. It's like, I don't know, 50,000 times strong, it's smaller than your hair, 10,000 depending on how thick your hair is. And then it is uh, 200 times stronger than its equivalent weight in steel. It is transparent, it's flexible, electrons and phonons act very differently in graphene. It's like this wonderland, a weird space in physics. And it was just so difficult to walk away and not look at this. And that's why, again, unconventional, I didn't do what I was supposed to be doing. I did something different. I did a PhD in graphene. Um, graphene got a lot of attention. Graphene is one of the most interesting, I'm a physicist, so for me, it's one of the most interesting <laughs> materials that exists out there. And it was so interesting that when it was discovered or first exfoliated in 2004, um, very quickly afterwards, a span of six years, it got the Nobel Prize for, uh, won the Nobel Prize. And then it, it was one of the fastest growing topics in the history of humankind. And it was very exciting what was developed around graphene and the knowledge that we share. And it was the first one of the two-dimensional materials. The surface area for graphene is so large that the thickness compared to it, it comes so small. It's like, there you go. It's like this. If this thing was infinite, then the thickness of this would really not have much of a weight compared to the, the surface area it exists. So it's so thin, it's one atomic layer thin and it becomes a two-dimensional material. But then since graphene, we've actually discovered a lot more materials that are two-dimensional. So it opened the door to a new kind of physics. What do you see the implication for these two-dimensional materials in the future? Um, there are lots of commercial applications for these things. And one of the most exciting things that has been de developed for graphene in the space of 
applications, like commercial applications, is actually in the brain-machine interfaces. So there are graphene interfaces inside the brain that can not only listen to the murmurs and whispers of your brain in a, um, in a, in, within a sensitivity that we've never seen before, but they can also stimulate, which is a very important thing when you are thinking about diseases like Alzheimer's, like Parkinson diseases. So one of those exciting areas is in the space of graphene inside biological applications for graphene, especially around biosensors um, and, uh, and active sensors. Other areas that we're seeing graphene development is people are adding graphene to concrete and to asphalt. And it is resulting in 30% less of a carbon emission for, um, for, for the production of cement um, and concrete. So lots of different applications. A lot of them are in electronic segment. Um, the exciting ones for me at least are in the biosensor segment. Um, but lot lots of cool things. I mean, it's is this is a material that is really um, has a very unique electronic and and conductivity, uh, thermal conductivity uh, signatures, and it is one atomic layer thin. So fantastic, it's super thin. So I want to circle back to your uh, to the start of our conversation where you mentioned being a creator, and with that, you actually founded. Puzzle X is it an organization? Could you could you actually just dive into what it is and what y'all do over there? What do we do over there? Interesting. What do we do in Barcelona? We've got a fantastic, unique event, uh, which is called Puzzle X. It's not a Puzzle X conference. It's not a congress. It's not a forum. We just call it Puzzle X because it's okay. so unique. And what it is is that. I wanted to create something which would allow us to bring the biggest pieces of this exponential futures that we have, from quantum to genomics, to brain interfaces, to metaverse, to an exotic compute, anything, graphene, anything that is extremely exciting in the space of deep science and deep technologies, to be able to bring them together in one place. Because I believe that they all play a role because they are all pieces of the same puzzle. And the way I envision this is that unless you bring these pieces of the puzzle together, you're not going to see the bigger picture. Imagine if this is a picture to the future, the, the roadmap to the future. We each have a piece of it. The people in quantum have a piece of it. The people in semiconductors have a piece of it. The people in genomics, the people in construction, the people in architecture, everybody has a piece of this problem is that we never bring our pieces together to see it. So sometimes we reinvent the wheel. Sometimes we need certain measures from different fields where we don't even know that they do have those tools and capacities and capabilities. And there is really no place in the world that brings those pieces together. So we thought again, in a space of creation, why not create one? If something doesn't exist, you don't sit around and say, well, it's not there. We say, why not create one? So we created one. And it has been immensely successful in the past two years. We bring together Nobel laureates, senators, ministers, heads of institutions from Fortune 500 companies, some of the biggest technologists in the world that come together from MIT to NUS to Harvard. They all come together and they describe what they're, what the future, what the piece of the future that they hold. And we had last year, we had about 3,000 people from 82 countries 
which is immensely international, which means that it's not just pieces of the puzzle from one geographical area, but we, we invite all the innovators. So if you deconstruct Puzzle X, I think that the underlying message and one of the big principles that you guys use is this culture of collaboration, which is so important in really any industry. And I'd love to dive into that just a bit about bringing all the ideas together and how we can create a culture of collaboration and a place where we can all share interesting ideas and advance our industries. Precisely. It is, I believe that this next decade or two are going to be around us optimizing how different fields and how different people talk to each other. And the truth is this, Charlie, it is not easy because if you put um, um, a condensed matter physicist on a stage and tell them to talk, and then you put, I don't know, somebody who is from John Hopkins and they're doing... Um, I don't know, DNA storage, um, information storage, or something like that on a stage. They do not speak the same language. They all speak English, but they do not speak the same language, which means that you could bring them together artificially and say, great, we brought all the different disciplines together. That doesn't mean that they will really connect and understand what they're, they're talking about. They talk in their own jargon, their own technical um, uh, language and the technical language from one field to the next field, they might be talking about the same concept, energy or work or temperature. And it might mean something completely different. What temperature means to a mechanical engineer and what temperature means to a physicist are two different things. There are two different phenomena. And if they, you're putting them on a stage and trying to make sure that they can collaborate and they can understand each other, you have to do a lot of prep work. We're the only event in the world that we go beyond what TED does. So TED, do you listen to TED Talks? I don't know. I do actually. And I know that you actually have one. Yes. <laughs> that is a good one because when I was your age, that was the way that we learned about things. We learned so much from TED Talks and I didn't know if uh, this new generation actually listens to TED Talks or not. But TED was such a new concept when I was young. Maybe it's not these days. There are podcasts. Or, there are different ways of you understanding something which is not in your field. Before that, there was nothing. And there was no internet. And there was it was like before, there was really no way people had to be in the same exact field or they wouldn't be able to understand and not, uh, an expert in another field. TED came and said, what if people told stories? So they basically encouraged people to wrap their very scientific complex topics in a storytelling format. And then at that point, we started listening to them because it was no longer a jargon, boring scientific talk, which I wouldn't have been able to follow if I was listening to somebody in psychology because I wouldn't understand anything about their field. But when you wrap that in a storytelling format, it becomes a different thing. We are able to learn. If you really want to cross boundaries of different disciplines, we need to have a common language and we need to be able to communicate differently. Ted did that 30 years ago. That's an old model. So what we do at PuzzleX is not only we created a new format, which our talks are all eight minutes. That's it. Eight minutes. You've got eight minutes. If you want to tell your story, eight minutes should be enough. If you can't tell your story, your story is not, is not good enough. Um, so you've got eight minutes. And then what we do is that we actually create immersive experiences within that, 
we create all the visuals and all the, all the everything that goes around media with it. So you are in a moment of saying, wow, I am in a performative keynote experience where you, we are going to be using everything we've got to make sure that at the end of that eight minutes, you understand what quantum computing is, because that's important. Because if you understand, then you can go to that person and say, I understand, we've got something else that we can collaborate with. But if you don't understand what they're saying, how are you going to collaborate with them? So that's the, that's the really missing piece that we are trying to solve is, it's not enough for us to say, let's collaborate cross-discipline. They don't have the common language. They also don't come together. They don't see each other in the same place. We bring them together in the same place, and then we create a common language for them to be able to communicate uh, with one another. And magic comes out of it. And I have some cool examples of that magic that comes out of it. Could you dive into those examples? Yes. Yeah, I can tell you. So last year, we came together, um, a lot of different people. And one of the most exciting projects that came out of PuzzleX in Barcelona last year, last November, was that we brought together people from different fields. And in one moment, we sat among each other at a table out in Barcelona at a table uh, with some great food. It was like late at night after the decisions have ended. And we had a biologist at the table and we had a quantum physicist at the table and we had a complexity scientist at the table and then we had a musician at the table. And we were contemplating and we said, what if we could create a music based on the blueprint of biology? And what if we could use a quantum computer to do that? So this resulted in actually something that is a project we're going to be unveiling at PuzzleX in November in Barcelona, which is we are going to be unveiling the sound and the music behind the patterns and the code of a stem cell turning into a heart cell, for example. There is a music to that. And this is a definition of interdisciplinary. People who didn't know each other, they didn't speak the same language. They came together because they met at Puzzle X and they understood each other and said, what if we could do this? And now we've got something that is a creation in a world that didn't exist before. That's so amazing. It's really cool that you can have all these specialists come together and then everyone leaves sort of being a generalist and having a better understanding of all the different industries that, and that really is where good ideas come from is from collaboration and not just specializing in one thing and figuring out different sources of ideas so that they can come together. Absolutely. And you know what we did this year? We open our doors to anybody who wants to innovate, collaborate, and volunteer and be a part of Puzzle X. And one of the most fascinating people that came on board last year was um, a superstar young person. Her name is Sasha. I think she is now going to be, I think she's going to Colombia uh, this, uh, this, uh, this August. And she came on board and she said, we need more Gen Z people involved. And she was right. Because a lot of specialists that we bring to the table, they are old and gray like me, and we need the younger generations to come in that they would bring their ideas. And she spearheaded, she worked with Puzzle X um, and she spearheaded a program, which is now we have, it is called Gen Z Spark. And we created a new way for Gen Z students to come in and we have a stage called the Spark Stage and they can come and give a talk and the story for a three-minute lightning talk. 
and they can talk about what their what their project is. It has to be science related, obviously, uh, but it could be anything. It could be something they're working on. It could be an idea for their startup. It doesn't matter. So we opened up that collaborative pathway for a lot of the students. And whoever is listening, if you're a student, you are absolutely welcome to come. Everybody, we the very more important piece of this puzzle is Gen Z for us. And we want to have more engagement and involvement because we believe that the voice of the next generation is going to be what creates the next generation. For sure. So on the same idea of creating and with one of the things that y'all talk about in Puzzle X with artificial intelligence, I have a question about creativity in the future. So how do you see creativity being changed by artificial intelligence? Do you think it becomes more accessible or do you think that with this new technology, it's going to be harder to be creative because, I mean, it's kind of doing your thinking for you in some ways? Um, I think that it is going to be augmenting the capacity of creation for those of us who are already thinking creatively. You started your podcast, which means you are super creative. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you go. If you think like that, that is always within you. Now imagine you have 10 more tools at your disposal, right? Then you're going to create more and more. You're going to create more efficiently and more effectively. There are people who never create. That's not their mindset. Is that going to be endangering their jobs and their capacity of creation? Yes, it is. Um, those who are creative within their bounds, they are going to have an extravaganza of tools to use to augment so that they have more and more time to really give birth to those foundational innovation patterns. Meaning if before it would take you two days to, I don't know, work on an illustrator or something to create an image that would describe what you wanted or create, I don't know, your podcast um, the logo or, or a visual identity that you wanted. If before it would take you two days to do that, three days to do that, or you had to actually go to somebody and hire someone to do it, now you can do it yourself. You can do it within five minutes and you have many different options to do exactly what you want. Great. Then it frees up your time to think, ooh, what else can I add to my podcast? I believe that it's going to give us immense tools for creation. So um, I am so excited about it. I can't wait to see what else comes up. <laughs> So AI was kind of, I would say it's been around for longer than we have thought of it being around, but this past year has been huge and everyone is like, oh, Chad GBT, oh, Dolly, this is so cool, mid-journey. And the people I've talked to have mentioned the next wave being maybe quantum and the convergence of quantum and artificial intelligence. Could you just explain that realm? That realm, the realm of quantum governs everything we have. This thing is quantum phenomena are ruling this thing. What, what we're using right now, even inside your own body, everything that we have in the small scale that we've got, not, not the bigger scale picture. Bigger scale, I would describe us big, and then you would talk about general relativity and big, much, much bigger things. Uh, but when it gets to the world of small, it's quantum mechanics that are ruling everything. So when we figured out the quantum mechanics rules and we were able to create things like this and the theories that gave birth to something like this, 
When we talk about quantum computing, that's a different kind of computing. That is, we used to, I mean, we still do. We work in the realm of zeros and ones, right? So zeros, there are two different states. You could think of it as something that is like a gateway that is open or is closed. And those are the two different ways. And it's then you actually want to compute. Exactly, binary. So the next thing with uh, with the with the with the quantum computer is that you've got a spectrum, right? You have a continuum of the states that you can be in, and the mastery that we have right now is that you can actually have you ha- you can do quantum and calculations by having a control over atoms, which is extremely amazing because it's the extent of our mastery over materials that we can actually compute on these different structures. And if you see those beautiful images you see of these some of these quantum computers with this big chandelier and everything, that's not what the quantum computer is. A quantum computer is a small chip. All of that stuff, the chandelier thing, is actually a cooling mechanism um, for the quantum computer itself. So we are, all of that is a structure for us to control the quantum states in that very, very small chip that we have. And the fact that we've been able to get to a point where we can do these things as a homo sapien, as some apes, it's amazing if you think about it. Right. So what are the uses for quantum? What are the uses for quantum? So quantum allows us to really compute on a spectrum which is not binary, right? And then it creates a different spectrum of things that we can dive into, which is simulating some of the things that can really uh, be useful in us being able to tell what a material does. And that that's where my interest comes in it. Quantum computers are used for optimization problems, for things like that, that it would take a classical computer a very long time to figure it out. They can figure it out very um, in much smaller t- uh, time scale, but that's not where my interest in it comes in. My interest in it comes in that um, Quantum systems and quantum computers can be used to simulate the state of a certain atom, which means that if you've got a complete simulation of an atom, and then you've got a complete simulation of another atom, what you can do is that you can actually do chemistry or physics without actually having to have a lab. If we know how to how to simulate it perfectly, then why do the experiment? Do so just run the simulation. Just a bunch of simulations that emulate real life because of exactly. the computing power of this. Yeah, it be. It is not just computing power. You cannot describe a quantum phenomenon by a classical computer. Zeros and ones are not enough okay. to simulate the reality of a wow. quantum state and a quantum system. Um, but if we're using again, these things are not something that is done right. There are a lot of things that are done in terms of material design. Um, even in, in space of pharmaceuticals, those things are done. But what we're discussing here is not something that would say, hey, Charlie, yeah, this is already available and people are doing this. The future, what we look forward to is to be able to simulate, simulate the reactions and the structure of materials where I would, you would tell me, I want a battery that would have this, this, this capacity. I don't have to go into a lab. You don't have to hire somebody like me or pay for a postdoc or a research to go into the lab, spend six years of uh, trial and error. What would, what would we do in the lab is basically you say, here is a system, let's put graphene on it and see, measure 
okay, let's put MOS2 on it and measure. And then we would um, draw up the graphs and everything. I would say, okay, here's a publication. We published these results and say, this one works best because of this. If you can simulate that, you don't need six years of somebody's time to do that. You can do it in an instance. You say, I want this, and you can simulate. And then it gives you, said, these are the parameters. Use this material. So what do you see the timeline being until quantum becomes practical in different industries? Oh, a difficult question because this, the range, the truth is we, we, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, the, uh, and we don't know because uh, the world of innovation is beautiful because we don't know how technology develops, really. Uh, technology develops in symbiotic relationship with other technologies, um, things like AIs. All of a sudden, we've been working on this thing for decades, and then all of a sudden, there is a boom. It reaches a tipping point when it becomes completely relevant. It, uh, it permeates in many different fields, and it gives birth to so many different hybrid areas. We don't know when this will happen for quantum. There are many different uh, projections for, depending on who you ask, it would be a different story if you ask a quantum computing um, company uh, uh, compared to if you're asking a consultant, if you're asking to governments. Um, think of it in a scale of like five, seven, 10, some people say 20 years. That doesn't mean that quantum computers or quantum systems, quantum phenomena are not used right now. There are many applications of quantum um, systems that are used in cryptography, in communication that are right now sensing, that are used right now. It's not that we have to wait, but that big glorious thing with quantum computers and general purpose quantum computers, um, that's not here right now. And it will take a while, but it's not, hey, oh, too bad. It takes a while. Come on, it's amazing how far we've come in such a small, short period of time. And everything in technology takes a very long time to develop. Just most people don't realize that. So I'd love to just talk about science for a bit and more specifically, kind of why you chose science. So what drew you in to being a physicist? My mom and dad keeps, kept giving us these uh, science fiction books, but I took Asimov and everything. I was like, I tell, sometimes I tell my mom, it's your fault if, if I did this. Uh, all the books I had as a child that they would get for us were all these things about, I don't know, planets and, and all science fiction. How many science fiction books I've read since I started reading? I started reading science fiction books. So for me, physics was this glorious place of all of these people I've read books about. And I wanted to do physics, not necessarily maybe driven by physics, but it was just something that I set in my mind that that was a cool that was a cool science. I want to be like the people. And goodness gracious, they tried really, really hard in undergrad and in masters to make this topic so boring and so terrible. I mean, if I didn't have a love of my childhood for becoming a physicist, I would have given up. That stuff we learned in undergrad was so boring. It has nothing to do with the real glory of physics. But that's a problem in our educational system because it wasn't until I went... Um, to my PhD where I was able to actually do things and use those things that I rediscovered my love for physics. Before that, it, there wasn't such thing. It was, you're just passing these boring courses and they're called physics courses. And I, yeah, and I was like a physics major. So 
hey, I, I powered through it. And at the end, I found the beauty, but I had to wait until my PhD. <laughs> right. So what you're saying is, and the message that I'm getting from that anecdote is doing something that you love is a fulfilling pursuit, not just in terms of your time and your career, but also the enjoyment of your education as well. Like finding something that excites you and you're curious about is one of the best things that you can do so that when you endure the hardships that are inevitably going to come your way, whether it be schooling, being boring as heck, or um, I don't know, so being an entrepreneur I know is such a challenge as well, but it was probably, and I'm just speculating, but your love of science that helped push you through, right? It was maybe my love of what I remembered uh, of the passion that was instilled in me in very young age. The school system didn't help. I mean, imagine how powerful those early moments and experiences of me dealing with science fiction was that I persevered through. High school was boring. Oh my God, I didn't learn anything in my undergrad. <laughs> God knows. And I still persevered. Why? Because I still had that image of, I want to be those physicists that I read in those books. I don't fault or blame anybody who goes through this and they say, I hated physics. And I said, so did I. It, the people who tell me in their undergrad, I hated physics. I said, yes, me too. <laughs> uh, the physics that I discovered at the end of it in my PhD was very much like the physics that I discovered when I was six or seven years old. In the middle of it, the system fails us in in understanding how magnificent this thing is. But that was my age. I hope that in you guys' age, it's better. Hopefully, they've done some better job. So, I can cut this out if you if it's not a good response. But I want to touch on something that another person talked about. So, I interviewed this NASA scientist named Dr. Lori Magruder, who was. I mean, an incredible interview. She, I think, majored in astrophysics, went and got a PhD as well. And she detailed that through her schooling, there were a lot of setbacks because she was the one woman in a room full of men. Did you experience any of those setbacks as well? And oh, you sure. did. Could you share about those? Yeah. Um, yes. And lo- setbacks. Yes. You are going to face setbacks. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to face setbacks. What defines what you will do is how you deal with it. And it doesn't mean that I dealt with it right. doesn't mean that I still deal with it right. But it's just something that you have to know you're not the only one going through it. That's the most important thing. You are not the only one going through that. You're not. I was, yes, I was in most scenarios, I was the only woman. And you know what? I was also a woman that liked makeup, liked dressing up. I liked things that were not common in, in physics or in our department. There was a time where some, one of our advisors actually came to me and said, we think you've got a lot of potential, but if you keep dressing like this, you're not going to make it far in this industry. Do you know what that does to somebody who's just starting with a lot of doubts? And my reaction to that was not... I'm going to prove you wrong at some point. No, it really broke me. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll never be a physicist. 
because they're telling me you cannot be a physicist by being myself. Because I thought to myself, maybe I should just dress like other people do. Maybe I shouldn't be wearing makeup. And then I told to my, I told myself, but then that wouldn't be me. I am me. This is a part of me. I don't want to be giving up on who I am. And the other passions in creativity that I have, which is expressed in the way that I present myself. And then I thought to myself, well, I guess I will never be a successful physicist. But you know what? I still love physics, so I still can do a PhD. And that stayed with me. I didn't do a PhD because I thought I was going to be a successful physicist or I was going to be successful at all because they told me you wouldn't be if I was who I was. I ended up being quite successful. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> the thing was that when I was going to it, it didn't feel like that. It felt like, okay, I was making a choice. You're going to see, see so many setbacks. And I keep telling people, it sounds so cliche, but stick to your guns. If And there are some times when you are not sure about something, right? And it's not really inherent in you. That moment's fine. You can choose one way or the other. But if it's really something that is you, uh, you've got an idea that you really, really want to embrace. Don't care about what other people say. And that sounds so cliche, but goodness gracious, go after it. It might take you 10 years of misery. But <laughs> right. It's, it's that old advice that your circumstance doesn't dictate who you are. You dictate the circumstance. And it's pretty much, I mean, when I look at you over this Zoom call, I mean, you have a, a beautiful green blazer you have a pretty picture behind you that super abstract and the puzzle x thing going with this i mean there's so many different unique aspects in your life and i think that is what has caused you to be successful not just that but putting yourself in the category of one there's a big significant impact of that because you're not competing in a crowd of same people you're competing in your own category and i think that's what you I want to add something to it. That's a very good observation. But you will pay the price for that for a long time until you become that category that is recognized. It is not good for us to sometimes tell people, stand out, do whatever you want. There was a moment I was on a stage at Puzzle X and I was wearing this, this sparkly blazers with a lot of sequins and things like that that usually most people wouldn't wear. But I can wear that. And I was wearing it, and one of um, our fantastic collaborators, who is a, was a superstar woman, young woman, came to me and said, I would love to wear something like this. And I just never have the guts, because she works for a very traditional corporate environment. She said, I would never have the guts to do it. Um, but you have inspired me. My answer to her was, you are going to get judged by wearing that. Don't think that you can just wear this thing or be yourself or that you are a creative person in a, in a field that is not creative and you're expressing yourself. You have a podcast. You might go to, a, to I don't know, to a, get a PhD and whatever, and then nobody else around you has a podcast. We say, I want to do this thing. You will be judged. They will judge you. They will put you down and they will do everything. But then at some point you prove yourself and it takes time for you to prove yourself. Now you become not, not an outsider. You become, wow, what a great example. Until then you are not. Until then you are the one, the black sheep that they're going to exclude. So let's be realistic about it. You will pay a price for being unique. If the price is worth it, do it. If you think it's going to be, oh, I'm going to be unique and everything is going to be hunky-dory. It's not going to be that. 
People don't like things that stand out. They will fight against it because you're not like them. And if you can power through that, then if you do a great job after a while, they will recognize you and then you become that person who stands out. Be ready for a lot of hard work and judgment. For sure. So as we end, I have three closing questions that I use with everyone. I ask everyone that I interview. The first one would be, I know you've already done a TED Talk, but if you were given the task to do a five minute or have five minutes of preparation for a TED Talk that you haven't done before, what would it be about and why would it be about that? I talk a lot about exponential technologies these days and how we've gotten to a point where certain parts of knowledge of humanity has reached um, a maturity level that they are taking off. It's like the tipping point for a lot of them. And at that point, we are going to have an exponential way of looking at science and technology. And that opens an immensely amazing door to what will be what will be. Five years from now, what we know um, is going to be so, so different. And I talk about that that moment, that exponential technology moment with quantum, with AI, with machine learning, uh, and with the nano assembly powers that we have, and also with our uh, control over biomaterials and genomics that we have. We're entering a new phase. Uh, that would be what I would talk about is how exciting that phase is going to be. Amazing. So second would be, what is the biggest misconception in your industry? And when I say your industry, it could be physics, it could be science, it could be the creative space. What do you believe is the biggest misconception that you see in your life? That we have all the answers. Goodness gracious, we don't have the answers. And that's what science is. Science is not having the answers. If you had the answers to everything, you would not be a scientist. If science was, science is science. But this, the way that we go about science is not always the stop sign. It's never the stop sign. If it was a stop sign, there would be no new PhDs. There would be no new discoveries. Perfection is stagnation. So there is never stop. Um, people who think that we figured everything out, they're wrong. And physicists, scientists who present things as this is the end of the world and this is the way it is and don't doubt it, they're wrong too. Okay. And third would be, if I was to give you an opportunity to put an idea, quote, phrase or thing that sticks with you on a billboard, this billboard seen by millions of people around the world, what would it be and why would it be that? Last week, somebody sent me an email saying that, Zena, you made it on my quote wall. And he was saying, Joe Rogan didn't make it. Um, Mitchell Kako hasn't made it, but you have made it. And the quote he had from me is something I don't even remember saying, but when I looked at it, I said, that does sound like me. And it was, this is the quote that he told me, um, which is, what's the function of a wall if you can't write on it? Okay, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, because I, I, we, I write on the walls. I, I, I use the walls. I keep saying why. I mean, people were saying, "Why are you writing on the walls?" Or we do a lot of things with Puzzle X, where it's like, turn every wall into something different. And people say, "Why are you writing on a wall?" I say, "What's the function of it? Let's write on the wall." <laughs> That's amazing. It's a matter of innovation and creativity. If there is an outlet for creativity, it doesn't matter if it's a white wall. Go and write on it express yourself. Amazing. Well, 
those are all the questions I have. I want to thank you so much for your time and your advice and uh, look forward to seeing what you have in the future. Of course. Thank you so much, Charlie. You're doing an amazing job.